How far away is the sun? One astronomical unit. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. That's the best answer. Give me it in miles. <laughs> but I, I have like a hilariously bad memory. I have a memory so bad that people like wouldn't believe me how bad my memory is. It is fairly atrocious. It's hilariously bad. But it's like endearing because you do remember some absolutely ridiculous things as well. Like what's the speed of gravity? 9.81 meters per second squared. There you go. <laughs> So I, I would call it selective. I don't think yeah. it's just bad. I think um, I think a lot of people know the speed of gravity. No, they don't. It's like it's like a like a pop quiz that I do, especially if I start dating someone. Yeah. I have like a little bank of questions. I'm like, do you know what the speed of gravity is? I I do like little little checks to see how common this knowledge is. Yeah. So I can I can tell you now, most people don't know the speed of gravity. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think, like, anybody who's, like, reasonably educated would know the speed of gravity. <laughs> I mean, like, if you get the average person off the street, then then fair enough. But if you were to just, like, narrow it down to, like, people with degrees. <laughs> <laughs> that's so ridiculous. No... No, the vast majority of people don't know the speed of gravity. How far away is the sun? One astronomical unit. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. That's the best answer. Give me it in miles. (laughs) (laughs) Or minutes, if you prefer. I'll take minutes. Isn't it like seven and a half minutes or something? I'm not sure about miles. Miles is um, 94.5 million miles, which is about 150.8 million kilometers. Have you ever seen uh, a psychiatrist? Have you ever had a conversation with one in a professional context? I don't think they really require a lot of cybersecurity services. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to, I work. I work with like e-commerce companies and you know tech companies and stuff. I don't. All right. Well, I hope one needs your help with cybersecurity soon. <laughs> So we're talking about climate change technology today, which is going to be super fun. So you've started the show notes with this really interesting quote. Before I get to the quote, um, are you aware of the Anthropocene Reviewed? It sounds like it relates to a period in time. Anthropo, I guess, would relate to like anthropomorphism, so like human factors. Yes. So I would guess that it relates in the same way as like the Pleistocene yeah whatever those ages are. this is the like the time of the humans yes yeah so um the anthropocene reviewed it's a podcast and it's a podcast where john green reviews aspects of the anthropocene being the period centered around humans right so he does a series of reviews just about like all kinds of things like there's one about the polio vaccine and then there's also one about a hot dog stand in iceland and stuff like that and he does a, a short, about 10 minutes review of them and then gives them a rating out of five stars. And sometimes it's really bad things like the actual plague. And sometimes it's really good things like this hot dog stand. Which plague would that be exactly? The bubonic plague. I see. And why is the hot dog stand so good? It sells really good hot dogs for reasonable prices. 
Okay, so in the Anthropocene Reviewed, there's a quotation. But the quotation is, We are at once far too powerful and not powerful enough, being able to radically reshape the Earth's climate and biodiversity, but not powerful enough to choose how we reshape it. And I think that's just true in so many ways where we have some technology that can vastly impact the the planet. We just can't necessarily impact it positively. I think like all of the, the climate change studies that I looked at before we started recording this and when we were putting the show notes together were from sort of the 1750s onwards um, when the bulk of like emissions and changes that have led to climate change started to occur. And I think that's probably like more of a modern phenomenon that we have the power to reshape the climate. I actually have like some difficulties with some of the terminology that that is around this topic. Like I really don't like the term global warming, for example. It leads to too many straw mans and too many people like arguing the wrong point. I generally like how I think about climate change. I tend to prefer the term climate instability. Like the changes that we are making to the world is causing climate instability. That's that's kind of like how I'm coming at this. But directly, for me, the difference between climate and weather is essentially the scale and amount of time that you're talking about. So when I go out for a hike, I check the weather. I don't check the climate, you know, because I'm looking at regional and it's a short timeline. Whereas climate would be the scale of the planet or maybe the scale of like a macro region. And then over a longer period of time. So not like, what is the weather like tomorrow? But how has the weather been affected over the last 50 years, for example? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, yeah, similarly. Um, the UN definition is actually pretty useful. It's pretty clear. Climate change refers to long-term shifts in temperatures and weather patterns. And they state that since the 1800s, human activities have been the main driver of climate change and impacts to these changes referring to kind of long-term trends, patterns over periods of time, and whether it does refer to short-term conditions within a region, typically. Um, so we see more extreme weather conditions like heat waves and drought and flooding as a result of climate change. That's quite direct as well, though, in terms of like bringing in their definition to include human activities, because they know that there's a lot of people out there that would draw the argument that climate change is real, but what they maybe don't agree with is... Um, human-centric climate change, right? The the fact that our recent activities, recent being the last few hundred years, are what is driving climate change. But the UN's definition there kind of centers around that. It's human activities leading to this change. So that's interesting. Yeah. Something that frustrates me whenever I see a, like a wide-scale global humanitarian or economical or environmental cause or issue like this is people who will argue that climate change has always been a factor it's always occurred there was an ice age and that these things happen regardless of whether we input into them or not or, or whether we are a factor and that our influence actually doesn't make a difference or it's not harmful and completely disregard like the very well-established and documented studies by like scientific bodies and regulators and so on generally speaking though I, I don't respect those people's viewpoint enough to like really listen to it because it's like flat earthers, right? It's like <laughs> any any sufficiently extreme position is indistinguishable from parody. So if somebody like genuinely tried to engage me in an argument or a debate that the flat earth was real, like I bundle all those people with like climate change deniers and things like that. People who believe in the moon. Oh yeah, I bundle them all together. <laughs> 
<laughs> please, please don't say that. I'm not getting into the moon today. I don't want to do it. The moon is real. Okay. Sure it is. Mm. <laughs> let me let me recall that again. Um so so I <laughs> so I just I couldn't help putting that in there. Uh, supposedly there are people out there who believe the earth is flat. I, I bundle all of those people together and as far as I'm concerned, it, this is some in-joke or some parody and I, I, I very much struggle to believe that that's their honest viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like uh, knowing the speed of gravity. You just assume that everybody has like this baseline level of common sense and that's not actually the case. There are There are some things though where how we know it or how we proved it is actually interesting like the story behind it is interesting for example how we experimentally proved special relativity for example like is an interesting story because things like the speed of gravity when we talk about the speed of gravity at 9.81 meters per second squared (laughs) we're talking about in a vacuum right Uh because on earth we have air resistance and i think that there are some areas like that where it is important to to pause i think with the flat earther discussion actually it is important that we don't just counter the flat earth rhetoric in our own heads in terms of like, oh, these people are crazy. And obviously what they're saying is a load of bunk. I think people should look into that and say, internally, I mean, I'm not talking about engaging flat earthers in discussion. I'm not talking about engaging (laughs) flat earthers in debate. I think that is a waste of your time. (laughs) But I do think it's important that when somebody presents something, it is cool to take a moment and say, well, how do we know that that is true? How do we actually know that um, the world is a globe? How did we measure that? When did we measure that? What's the history of that? And some of the things, especially the more recent, I guess, discoveries or calculations might be a better term in terms of things like special relativity. How was it theorized and then how was it experimentally proven is a really interesting thing to look at. In the same sense that to bring it back to climate change, I do think that people should look at the data you have to bear in mind that the average person listening to this podcast, there may be important foundational aspects that you don't necessarily understand and it isn't just going to be like read one paper and that's the end of the story but I do think there's a certain amount of benefit to going in and taking a look at the actual research in particular I think this most specifically applies to climate technology like the kinds of things what we'll get into for example you hear this this constant constant rhetoric that nuclear power is dangerous And it's like, why do you think that? Do you think that because in the 70s and 80s there were movies that told you it was? Do you believe it because that was what you were told by your parents and grandparents? Or do you believe it because you have taken a look at the modern research, the recent work that's been done in that field, and the data presents that as an argument? Because I think if you got the average person on the street, if you got Joe Average and you asked them fundamental, like foundational level questions about things like um, climate change, about things like nuclear technology, about things like energy storage, I don't think the average person would know even the first thing about those things. Or if they did, it would be maybe things that were true in the 80s or things that were true in the 90s and they're not necessarily true now. I think... There's a huge amount of like common knowledge that is just like wildly inaccurate. Or it's based on specific crises and events from the past, like 
Fukushima and Chernobyl, that's um, a massive factor in why people still don't see nuclear power as a, a safe option. But again, like, like you say, you've got to look at the statistics and how frequently those kinds of events occur and like the grand scheme of things and what the cost and benefit is from like an energy perspective and like the impact on the climate and all of that. Yeah, so there is that. But there's also like bearing in mind that that is one data point and I mean, directly speaking, in fact, that might be a great question to ask Joe Average on the street, would be to stop just the average person and say, how many people died in the immediate aftermath of Chernobyl? How many people died? And I think the answer that you would get would be tens of thousands. And the actual answer is about 30. Now, of course, we're spilling over here into a difficult discussion in terms of like the long-term after effects. So the spilling of the nuclear material into the atmosphere, the fact that that was a multinational incident, those are valid concerns. I'm just going to put those to one side for a second to say that I think the common knowledge would be that an explosion occurred and it killed tens of thousands of people. And it's just demonstrably not true. That is not what happened. It doesn't mean that it wasn't a serious incident, but... I think people's mental image of a disaster as bad as Chernobyl is like a movie scene, not actually what happened. And equally as important to um, what happened would be, why did that happen? What were the circumstances around that? Both political in terms of what was happening in the Soviet Union at the time, but also in terms of the fact that Chernobyl had a specific kind of reactor it was used in a specific way and that led to this disaster and there is more than one kind of nuclear reactor. N- not to get that deep into the nuclear side of this discussion this early on, but there's like a lot of variables at play here and I think mm-hmm. that the common knowledge is is just wildly inaccurate. I think I learned about Chernobyl at school like over a decade ago and I remember the facts of it at the time being kind of smaller than I was expecting and the the major parts of the fallout were kind of like the long-term effects and and how it impacted like pregnant women and their children who lived in the area at the time, how many people developed kind of cancer and other like longer-term conditions after the fact. But in the initial like disaster itself, the death toll wasn't what people would expect. I think one of the biggest factors with that and the reason that it is such a, a scary point for everybody who is sort of semi-aware of what happened is that there's such a vast area of land now that is just uninhabitable because of of the the meltdown and like lingering radiation. There are other factors as well that were important because of the political situation at the time. So one of the factors being that the Soviet Union wasn't forthcoming with the situation. You could imagine if I guess maybe this is a little bit hopeful, but if a modern European nation had a nuclear disaster at any scale, that they would be very forthcoming to organizations like the UN and other European nations in terms of sharing what the situation on the ground is, sharing the data that they have so that we can come together as a society to address the disaster. Whereas at the time of Chernobyl, they denied it for a huge amount of time, denied uh, what had occurred, denied the damage that had occurred. Um, There was other incidents where just like the Soviet Union wasn't forthcoming. And of course, that's because it was a particular political situation at the time. But I think that does lead people to maybe just speculate. And maybe some of the newspaper headlines at the time were calling doomsday. Thousands of people died because they 
they had no actual information to go on. So maybe they were scaremongering to some degree, or maybe they were just having bad journalistic practices. You mentioned mm-hmm. Fukushima as well. Fukushima's interesting because not only is it a more recent nuclear disaster, but it's a disaster for different reasons. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't arguably how the reactor was uh, being utilized, but it was a natural disaster occurred and that impacted the facility. Um, but also, do you know what the death toll of Fukushima was? I don't. I, I can't remember if it was like six people or if it was like magnitudes higher than Chernobyl. So it, it was interesting again because of the context, because a tsunami hit, right? So there is a significant number of fatalities directly as a result of the tsunami. As a direct result of the the nuclear incident, one person died. However, as a result of the evacuation, a little more than 2,000 people uh, have died for, for various reasons related to the evacuation and, and how difficult that, that was. But yeah, not to draw too many parallels between Chernobyl and Fukushima, but again, the death toll is like significantly lower than maybe the average person would predict. Well, this is a very cheery start to um, what apparently is not going to be a very cheery episode. <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't necessarily plan to to jump straight into nuclear. No, it, I didn't. It just is. It is a passion area for me, and it's a passion area because um, I, I guess I should preface this with I'm not pro nuclear. That that isn't the stance that I have. I'm not like coming on this podcast to say like how amazing this technology is. What I am is very frustrated that many of the arguments against nuclear are just a, a inaccurate. I think that there is a strong negative, a strong anti-nuclear stance that you could take. But I would like data-driven arguments, not emotionally-driven arguments from movies created in the late 80s. Oof. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, if we're going to throw some opinions out there, I would say that I'm pro-solar. I'm, I'm wind-agnostic for a couple of reasons that, that might come out. <laughs> I think there's some, um, some limitations there. Uh, both in terms of the technology, but also societally, which frustrate me with wind. But do you like wind farms? I'm a big fan. <laughs> wind farms. <laughs> I am a big fan of wind farms. Um, but I do acknowledge that I am. I have an, an odd aesthetic that I like. Oh, one second. Um, can you like let's do an intermission and and you like and entertain the audience? I'll be about fifteen seconds. <laughs> okay. I am going to take this opportunity to explain carbon offsetting while Holly's doing whatever she's doing. Um, so carbon offsetting is really cool and it's um, improving in visibility as a branding technique at the minute. Um, there are a lot of companies, especially kind of indie startups, who market their products as carbon neutral or increasingly carbon negative. Um, And what that means is that they basically contribute to carbon offsetting efforts, such as like reforestation projects, um, which result in a net decrease in emissions and offsets the emissions resulting from the like production, transport and sale of their products. Um, So carbon neutrals are a growing brand strategy among eco-conscious consumers and and targeting those consumers. Um, But I actually came across a really cool indie beer brand earlier this year who are carbon negative. Um, and they basically offset two tons of carbon for every ton that they emit. And Holly is back now, so... Hello. Sorry, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to do a show and tell in this episode. Um, so, do, do I like wind farms? I do like wind farms, but I do also acknowledge that I have an unusual aesthetic. Like, there's 
um, things that I like the look of and I like being in the natural environment that I think a lot of people would, would be against. Don't get me wrong. I'm not like pro theme parks in areas of outstanding natural beauty and things like that. Uh, that that's a hat tip to the fact that they're planning on putting a theme park in the lake district. Terrible idea. So I'm not I'm not pro things like that, but I do like the look of wind farms, in particular <laughs> offshore wind. I think they look really cool. I don't I don't mind them one bit. Um, but do you have a coffee table book? Yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So like. A book that you have in the living space of your home so that if friends come around, it's something for them to like peruse whilst you make coffees or something like that, right? My coffee table book is Concrete Siberia, <laughs> which is uh, photographs. It's a photography book of Soviet landscapes of the far north. And the fact that this is my coffee table book probably tells you all you need to know about my opinions in terms of whether wind farms are aesthetically pleasing or not. Yeah. My coffee table book is an illustrated history of demonology. So <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. Two kinds of people in the world. I do like I do like wind farms. I just think there's some limitations there. Also, solar panels are better because they don't yeet birds. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about this actually, and like my general opinions and perspectives and feelings towards wind farms, they're not. They're not negative, but they're also not massively positive. Like I do prefer other sources of renewables um, because I, I grew up near a wind farm and uh, I remember all of the kind of the petitions that were going on, the complaints from the locals at the time that were saying, you know, that it would ruin the view or it would disturb local habitats. Um, there's noise pollution to consider. It can be really disruptive to the biodiversity of local populations but then there's there's other things to consider as well. Like if you live in an area that frequently gets gale force winds, say off a coast, which is where they frequently do put these things, then they shut off past a certain speed to make sure that they're not damaged. So I guess there's there's a, a ceiling to how effective they are. Um, and they also rely on there being some kind of inclement weather in the first place or it being a reasonably windy day in order for them to be functional and profitable. I saw a tweet a few days ago, which just for me was like the best example of the general population doesn't really understand the developments in terms of electricity generation technology and what it was was the fact that offshore wind is nine times cheaper than gas right and they're trying to state this is an efficiency of offshore wind right it's cheap but what really made me laugh was the fact that somebody had replied saying yeah but where are they going to put them all they should have compulsory land taking from the landowners in the UK. Like we should take all of this land from the Tories to, you know, so that we can't have NIMBYs, people who don't want wind farms in, in their backyard, in their local area. Like, and the whole time I'm reading this, I'm just like, offshore? <laughs> offshore wind generation is nine times cheaper than gas. I have a question. What's a NIMBY? Not in my backyard. <laughs> A NIMBY is not in my backyard, and it is a person who is pro the use of a technology, but not in their local area. So we should have wind farms, but not in the town that I live. 
He mentioned solar a minute ago, and I've seen a couple of really interesting projects using solar power and solar panels, actually. Um, I guess there's there's new housing estates that are being developed and built um, and can come with like solar powered roofs as standard. And then there are solar roads as well, I think I've seen, which I guess uh, are not so useful if it's a high traffic area where any of this constantly like cars backed up covering the panels. But if it was like a motorway that wasn't used very often, potentially that would be really useful. And then there's projects as well where they use solar panels to cover rivers in areas of drought, which I think prevents water loss and improves like irrigation. Yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of solar, of panel technology, is the fact that there's a huge number of places that you could potentially put it where the space isn't otherwise useful. Mm. I think there's some weaknesses to solar and... Um, it's it's not currently very efficient. There is things like if the panels aren't tracking, if they're just static panels, then it's less efficient than if they're tracking and those kinds of things. And and then there's the fact that you have to cover huge areas to have actual um, meaningful solar production. But yeah, like you said, there's solar roads. I've seen an implementation where the solar technology is built into the tarmac. I've seen an implementation where the road is covered with solar. I've seen an implementation where the central reservation is covered by solar. So the road is not, but the central reservation is. The idea being you could have like a, a cycle path or something down the middle and, th- and that is covered by panels. So the panels are not only generating power, but also covering the, the cyclists. Yeah, there's, there's huge areas that you could put them. I think there's some weaknesses there in terms of the same, but to a lesser degree with, with wind turbines. I think there's a lot of people who don't like the look of them. There's a lot of people who wouldn't want a solar power station if you imagine like covering a large area of land with solar panels and that kind of thing it's a lot of land out there though yeah i've seen that before but i think there's like a lot of not propaganda but almost like there's a lack of understanding about the volume of like land or the area of space that's available and what we can reasonably use that for so say if there is a food shortage People expect to use um, whatever land we've got free as arable land for farming, for crops and so on. Um, And then the argument will be, you know, if you're using that for solar power, you can't use it for farming. Like a lot of that land actually you can't use for farming anyway because it's not fertile or it's just not um, feasible and it would take too much investment to get it into a place where you could use it for farming. Um, The, The kind of extreme position here would be like, oh, why don't we just put solar panels in the Sahara Desert? The desert is huge and it's land not otherwise being used. And it's like, yeah, on paper, you have this huge area of land that's not being used, but there's still a logistics problem. You've still got to like get it there and get the engineers there and be able to then transport or store that power. So yeah, there's there's more problems than just slapping up some panels. Yep. Got to clean them, people. Got to clean them. Yeah, I guess if you put them in the desert, they'd get dusty pretty quickly. Not put them on your roof and useful. never clean your roof. It's the same thing. You're losing efficiency. Put them on the roof of your car and then your car's filthy. <laughs> how, how would that work though? Because I've never seen a car with a solar panel roof. The solar panel on the roof thing is, is interesting. Elon Musk once stated that one of the Teslas might get a, a solar roof. And then he later walked that back and that's out of character there there are cars there are cars out there that you can buy an ev that has a solar roof 
but some of the marketing around that, some of the documentation is just like wildly misleading. The, the truth is you need a large area to generate power and uh, vehicles are often dirty and they're often covered, parked in garages, parked underground, those kinds of things. And the amount of actual surface area on the roof of a car, it's going to be what, like 10 to 25 square feet. It's not, not a huge area. So the actual amount of power that you can get through that given the actual average amount of time that vehicle would be in direct sunlight or in powerful sunlight it's it's minimal the the argument being that there are other places that it is better to put solar panels than on the roof of the car you're not going to get a huge gain from having a solar roof but you might get a better gain by having solar generated electricity delivered to your house that you then charge your car with I ran some some numbers looking at the, the average sunlight for the average area and the average size of the average car and, and those kinds of things. So there's a rounding error in here, but it's something in the region of one to three miles of additional range per hour that the vehicle is in the sun for. It's not it's not a huge uh, amount. I, I worked out, again, taking in some wild averages here, to charge an EV with a solar roof would take about 29 days, so call it a month. So yeah, it it would work. You you can gain some additional range, but it, it's not groundbreaking. Um, you're gonna have you know you would get a better effect by putting putting panels on the roof of your house and then charging the car from the roof panels as opposed to putting them on the car itself. Those kinds of things. So so I think that's the argument against. Well, there's two arguments. The first argument is the, there's better alternatives, and the second is a lot of the things that you will hear from. EV companies is what we might call puffing. That's like exaggerating the circumstances for the sake of sales. That sounds really unlikely. I can't imagine anybody doing that. You say that it's about like the space then and that you've got to dedicate to a solar panel. Do you think that it would work better on like a lorry if we were looking into uh, developing electric vehicles, lorries for logistics and things? Or would that still be really inefficient? I mean, it would be better, but you're going to lose, you potentially, not necessarily, but potentially going to lose some efficiency. If you just like slap some off the shelf panels on the roof of a lorry, you're going to impact the aerodynamics of that vehicle. That is something that could be worked around. The vehicle's then carrying additional weight because it's carrying the panels and the controller and those kinds of things. And it, again, I think it falls into the same problem of like, yes, this is space that you could put panels, but you could just put those panels at the depot and charge at the depot. Yeah, I don't I don't at the moment, or certainly I haven't seen any data to, to suggest that vehicle-mounted panels would be better than ground-mounted panels in an area such as the power station and then pushing electricity of the grid or just like at the depot of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Logic. Yeah, especially you could imagine like an implementation could be if you have an EV charging station, so like how we currently have petrol stations for... Uh, refueling vehicles you could have an ev charging station where the rest of that ground is just taken up by solar panels and they have effectively on-site generation of solar you know that is that is going to be more efficient than vehicles carrying their own panels Mm. i'd love to be wrong on that and i'd love for technology to to develop in such a way i don't think it's going to happen i think big oil would assassinate us if we got anywhere near that personally i mean yeah that's true but like um i don't know if you know this but the the price of 
electricity generated through renewables is tied to the gas price in the UK. So a lot of people are confused at the moment that their energy prices are going up because of the current situation. But they are, maybe their provider is saying, oh, we're 100% renewable. And they're saying, well, why is our price going up? Because it's tied to the price of gas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a yeah. Yeah, economic my problem there. Provider uses 100% renewables and same situation. Um, but I think you can't divorce yourself entirely from that economic situation. Um, but from a, like an ethical perspective or a personal preference perspective or whatever it is, like you can choose to go with either. Um, you could, you could um, divorce, divorce yourself from that situation, but um, that is that is a huge hurdle, and it's actually worth looking at. Um, what is the potential that an average lay person could go off grid with something like solar generation and those kinds of things? And the problem isn't necessarily where where people think it is. So you might say, "Well, we'll retain a grid connection, and then we'll cover our house in solar panels, and we'll save loads and loads of money because we're generating our own power." but we have a grid connection just in case we have a few rainy days and you're not generating power or you have no storage capability. But the problem is you still have a standing charge. You still have a charge for being connected to the grid. And removing that grid connection massively ramps up the complexity of generating power. And the reason being that a lot of the electricity use you have in the home is um, the volatility is huge, right? You have huge peaks, So uh, running the lights in your home, especially if you have LED lights and those kinds of things, and you're not running them for very long because it's bright during the day, so you're only running them in the evening, those kinds of things. The actual draw from LED lights is tiny, but then look at the draw from your clothes dryer or something like that, or your oven. And it's very (laughs) peaky energy usage. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to generate a huge amount of energy, but can you store it for those periods in which you need to run a high utilization device? And that's the difficulty. And if you can't, and therefore you remain, if you have to remain on the grid, then you're paying a standing charge for that grid connection. I think I saw something similar to that once um, from like the national grid and they basically projected the entire country's approximate use over the course of a day. And there is one specific like ad break um, around the time of like Coronation Street or something like that. Um, And this is pre the advent of streaming. So when everybody would kind of watch scheduled TV shows and there would be specific breaks, everybody in the country pretty much who was watching this would go into the kitchen and make a cup of tea at the exact same time. And they would all need to boil their kettles. And there was a massive spike in demand for electricity at that exact time every evening. Um, So they had to basically figure out how to scale their needs accordingly. Do you know how we do that? I would assume it would be storage. Yeah, but this is the thing, right? So um, rapid increases in power generation is really difficult, right? Just like you can't have like a coal-fired power station that's turned off 23 hours of the day, but when the coronation ad break comes on, we fire the station (laughs) up and we start generating electricity. That's very difficult. And also, as we know, power storage is very difficult. So we can't necessarily have the opposite thing where it it is uh, generating power, but then it's storing it. Those are both uh, difficult problems. And the actual solution for that problem for the national grid is um, hydroelectricity. Mm. We, we pump water up to the top of a place that's called Electric Mountain. We pump water up when electricity is cheap. So in the off-peak hours, and that is electricity storage, having water up high. And then when you need that demand and you need it quickly... You can release the water, you could drive a turbine with that, and that solves both of those problems. Power generation at short notice and storage. 
And also we called it Electric Mountain. <laughs> yeah, I was stuck on that part. That's all really cool. I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. I do kind of think it's a bit weird, though, that there's a cost associated with these things. I'm not getting into that. We can cut that out. We can, we can, I guess, offhandedly mention it and then not, not get into it. So, so there are many costs that I guess we're not going to account for in this particular situation. For example, you might make the decision that an EV is a good thing to buy because, you know, you, you don't want to be burning fossil fuels. Cool, great stance to take. Building that electric vehicle is incredibly bad for the environment. So, you know, there, there's multiple stages. The, the one that people usually point to as well would be, what is the point of having an electric vehicle if you're charging that electric vehicle from coal-fired power stations and those kinds of things? Th- those are problems. When you run the numbers, they're, they're different problems to, you know, just running a, a petrol-powered car or something like that. If we're going to gloss over the fact that there's costs associated with this stuff, then we should at least hat tip towards it and say, like, yeah, you know what, actually building EVs is pretty awful for the environment. Yeah, I think it's it's a bigger picture, really. Um, it, it's not great for the planet, and there are other impacts as well. Like, what do you do with the batteries once they're spent? How do you dispose of those? Things like that. What do we... So, uh, wind turbines have a lifespan, right? And then we have to decommission them. This is the same with everything, right? Nuclear power stations have a uh, lifespan. We can't recycle wind turbine blades. Hmm. And it's just like this is a cost that we have to think about because it isn't as simple as saying, let's shut down all of the coal-fired power stations and move to 100% wind if that was possible, if we had the battery technology to handle that. Because that doesn't make the problem go away. It may reduce it, but it, it brings with it additional problems. And this and you could, you could throw the argument at me as well. I mentioned nuclear earlier and, and how good that was. You could throw the argument at me that decommissioning a nuclear station is pretty difficult. Also, nuclear submarines, those are also hilariously difficult to decommission. If anybody wants some um, uh, exercise left for the reader, look at how many nuclear submarines have been successfully decommissioned. I think we should talk about that another time. Sounds interesting. It'd be a really short uh, podcast. The podcast would start, we'd do an introduction, and then we'd go, none. And then we'd play the <laughs> No, I mean, I, there's probably other cool stuff around that that we can talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, just just a hat tip to say that there are costs. We are glossing over some costs that's acknowledged. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But I think it's about the smaller steps that individual consumers can take to either set themselves up to use renewables in the future or to improve the situation as a whole. But that doesn't really take into account the fact that the vast majority of emissions come from massive corporations, which I guess... I thought we solved this. We made McDonald's <laughs> use plastic straws. <laughs> We made it so that Morrisons and Tesco's can't give me plastic bags, so we charge them a fee. So now we have paper bags or like hemp bags and canvas bags and stuff like that. And didn't that didn't we solve everything? We we got rid of the plastic straws. We're done. We we got rid of plastic straws, which unfairly impacted disabled people. But then Kylie Jenner decided to make up for it with her three minute flights to California. But I think like the paper straws thing as an example they still take energy to produce and time to biodegrade and create emissions they're not necessarily functional there's been various complaints and anybody who's used them knows that they tend to melt into your drinks pretty quickly probably like 20 minutes into a cold drink or something but there are so many alternatives on the market now and like being developed so like plant-based plastic alternatives that are biodegradable so that they're still accessible 
And I saw something, I think last year, where a company trialed a new type of packaging that was actually made from pea protein. And it was it was dissolvable and like food safe and everything, which is really cool. So there is work going on to address that. But like the vast majority of it is going to be in the large volumes of waste in like the fashion industry, for example, and the food industry as well. Those are two massive contributors to climate change in terms of global emissions. But Kylie Jenner is definitely not helping. Not, not only do some of these individual changes not help because on the grand scheme of things, on the pie chart, those individual decisions are minuscule in comparison to heavy industries and things like that. But also, some of the substitutions that are chosen just aren't that good. Like, if you swap out single-use plastic bags for, say, cotton tote bags, the CO2 equivalent of making the cotton tote bag is significant, it's huge in comparison to making the plastic bag. It's something like um, three and a half pounds versus 600 pounds. So of course the cotton bag is better for the environment if you use it repeatedly because it's not single use and also plastic is generally bad. But just on that one metric, and there's other metrics, just on that one metric, you'd have to reuse the cotton tote bag 172 times to break even with the plastic bag on CO2E. Well, I I really appreciate that exact figure because that's really useful. Every time I go to a security conference, I end up leaving with like four canvas bags full of generic merch and leaflets and junk. And I'm like trying not to take it now. Like if they, they have like lots of single use plastic or those little trinkets and stuff that they give you. Um, but I think I've got like six or seven canvas bags. And whenever I go to the shop for something or I go out, I always make sure that there's one in my backpack. So I haven't actually used a single use plastic bag for quite a while. But if you've got like seven or eight yeah. uh, of these tote bags <laughs> and you've got to use each one yeah. 172 times to break even with a single yes. plastic bag. You're, you're, no, no, it's more than yours. You're going to be bequeathing those to yeah. your children with with a tag attached to them that, that this one's got another 33 years of use before we break even. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, but I'd still rather that than plastic bags. You know, like everybody had that cupboard under the sink or under the stairs or wherever it was as a kid where your mum had a couple of plastic bags full of plastic bags and they didn't get reused for shopping. They were used for something else or they would go in the bin ultimately. Um, the, the, the bag of bags. Um, the can, bags I, can I have of one bags. more rant um, yeah. before, I, before I hand over the, the mic? <laughs> um, also, sometimes companies uh, replace one material with another material. So they might have a product that they sell that is wrapped in plastic and they swap that plastic out for cardboard, for example. Um, I bought some batteries recently because uh, I needed them to go into my prepper bag for my torches. And... <laughs> Uh, so I bought um, eight AAA batteries, right? Relative, you can imagine the area required for, for eight AAA batteries. The box that they came in, which granted was cardboard, better than plastic, was easily like four or five times the size of the actual area required to store the batteries. It's just like most of this packaging is entirely wasted. Was it Amazon, perchance? If the average person thinks of a company that makes batteries, it was that company. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, this is... <laughs> I'm sure other companies have terrible packaging uh, standards as well, but I bought some batteries and then had 
six times more cardboard than I needed. This is something that sort of started to strike me during the pandemic, actually, when we were all forced to sort of rely on online shopping a lot more than usual because the shops were closed and you couldn't just kind of pop out somewhere. Uh, Definitely not in that first stretch when everything was closed. You had to do all of your shopping online. And I was getting packages that would come in these massive boxes. And it was actually something quite small that I'd ordered. And it was, it's just really inefficient. If you think of it, not just from wasting the packaging itself perspective, but then how many of those packages can you fit in a van? Because that thing that's actually really small is in a a box like five or six times too big for it, which means that you then need to do more trips to deliver the same number of packages because you don't have capacity in the van for them. It's it's really strange, like the knock-on effect of these tiny things as a whole. No, it's fine. We'll slap some solar panels on the roof of the van and we'll completely (laughs) offset all of this cardboard. Not when they have to take four trips to your house because they pretend to knock and just shove a leaflet through instead. I've, uh, I've just sent you a photograph. I was so appalled at that packaging that I actually photographed it. <laughs> okay, let's have a look at this. It's ridiculous. Oh, that's really bad. And they're all separated like that. Like Normally they For shrink no wrap reason. batteries, don't they? And they'll like, yeah, group them yeah. together and... That's interesting. It's usually a, like a vacuum packaging, isn't it? Yeah. Or I guess previously it would have been vacuum packaging. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is maybe some efficiency gain at their end where there is more room in this box. So if they're selling an eight pack or a 16 pack, it's the same box with a different inset. Maybe that's, you know, it's an efficiency gain at their end. But yeah, I got this box in the post and I was just like, what a waste. Like. Mm. Yeah, not not great, that one. On the, the delivery point, though, that I just made, actually, there's some really cool initiatives that I've seen lately. So there's a startup in London. Well, they're based here, but they do, like, nationwide delivery in the logistics space, and they're kind of, like, a rival to the likes of, like, DPD and Every and so on. And they do, like, package parcel delivery. But they use 100% electric vehicles or cargo bikes, and they're marketing themselves as emission-free. They were founded in 2020, and they've had about two million in funding so far, so that's pretty cool. Um, and there's efforts to produce like electric vans and delivery vehicles and things to make that sector more sustainable. But besides that, I think there's a big gap in the logistics and definitely the aviation space for sustainability, renewables, uh, electric vehicles, and things like that. I know that aviation has some difficulties in terms of vehicle range. So like with every will in the world, you might want to use an electric plane, but at the moment they can only do the shortest of short hops. You're never going to, at this stage, do long haul. But yeah, I think, again, we're falling into market forces here in terms of if you're given, and you do see this sometimes, I know some fashion websites, for example, have this as an option where when it comes to delivery, you have like courier, courier carbon neutral as options. But... Hmm. how many consumers as it stands are going to go oh carbon neutral i should take that that's a positive in comparison to just the um the time for delivery you know it, it might be it might be like oh we have a carbon neutral option it'll take three to five days to arrive we'll get it to you on monday or we can burn this puppy alive but you can have it tomorrow <laughs> oh ouch. i actually haven't seen that but it's a really interesting point i saw something a few months ago where you pay like a flat fee every month and they offset your carbon footprint for you so you tell them like what your dietary choices are how often you drink if you drive what kind of car you've got all of that stuff and they calculate approximately what your carbon footprint is 
and then they will um, offer you a certain amount of packages. So do you want to just offset for yourself? Do you want to like offset one and a half of you? Is it a family or like a couple or something like that? And then you just pay like basically the equivalent of a Netflix subscription or something. And they plant a certain number of trees for you and like offset your your carbon emissions effectively, which is a, a really cool idea. And yeah, I have seen some uh, companies that are carbon neutral or carbon negative by default, but I haven't seen that added like as an option to say like, would you like carbon offsetting or a carbon neutral delivery? That's something that I would like to see more of though, for sure. It's definitely something that I've seen an, an option. The funny thing is as well, I can't remember off the top of my head if it actually impacted delivery times. Um, it isn't something I've seen very often, but I have definitely seen at least one career offer carbon neutral as a, as a option. I suppose there's probably an additional cost associated with it. Otherwise, you would make it the default, surely, if that was something that you were committed to from like a economical risk perspective. I see this where you have the option to group deliveries as well. So you have the option for get it as quickly as possible or get it in as few deliveries as possible. I always feel like that's presented as like a convenience. Like, oh, well, you know, um, if you have to take a day off work to have these things delivered, then having them all come together is a benefit in in that regard. But Mm -hmm. in actuality, I would imagine that just logistically it's going to be better for the environment to have one van come than, you know, three deliveries across three days. I guess it depends. Something that came up when I was looking into this was a way that is being recommended at the minute that the logistics and transport sectors reduce emissions is to have things like pop-up warehouses so that the stock is closer to the customers and therefore any emissions created by transporting that to them are lower. Um, If you're ordering things from several different stores or different warehouses, they've still got to kind of transport those all to the same place to centralize that and give you it in one delivery so I don't know if it's always going to be more efficient there'll probably be cases where it's more environmentally friendly but I wouldn't make I wouldn't like to guess given Amazon's practices that that it would that it will always be the eco-friendly choice I think it will always have an effect it's just as at what percentage would it have an effect because what we're talking about here is less last mile deliveries mm. but yeah the point that you're making of well they've all gone to the warehouse and that's potentially the actual bigger proportion of that um, delivery but uh, but yeah the last mile can still be pretty inefficient yeah and you see that with like I think a big one that's going to link into food actually which we should probably talk about next is there are like meal kit providers now who are marketing themselves on being lower carbon impact lower emissions than buying the same ingredients at the supermarket because you effectively have all of these these things these produce delivered to a supermarket you'll go there you'll buy identical ingredients for what's effectively the same recipe and then have to transport it all home and if you're driving to the supermarket as well it just adds well additional overhead to that whereas if you're using one of these like providers their supply chain processes might be more sustainable or more responsible and they deliver them directly to your house and it's portioned so potentially less food waste and all of that so that one's something to consider I don't think there's a lot of thought that goes into the the last mile and the impact that that has on the sustainability of something and the life cycle of it yeah I saw one similar kind of problem where somebody was talking about how they only ever fill up their car halfway and the argument was that fuel is heavy 
So by only filling up your car halfway, the vehicle is running more efficiently because it's carrying less weight. So it's a minor inconvenience, but it's better for the environment is the argument, so to speak. And it seems in actuality when you run the numbers that it's entirely offset by the fact that you're driving to the petrol station twice as frequently. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes people's hearts are maybe in the right place. But that's what I was talking about earlier in terms of like, I would prefer data-driven arguments. You know, it's like, if you're going to take my plastic straws away from me, that's fine. I'll support that. But, you know, show me the numbers. The numbers. <laughs> I want to know how many whales, like specifically how many whales am I saving? I don't know if you're specifically saving any whales, but I would recommend that you only use a straw if you need one. That's kind of the point behind all of this, isn't it? And if you do really need one, go for a sustainable alternative instead of a plastic, single-use plastic straw or a paper one that's going to melt into your drink and not be any use at all. Like, if I'm at a coffee shop and I'm going to sit inside, I don't need a paper cup with a plastic lid. Completely ridiculous. And if I'm having something delivered to my house, I don't need them to bring me the single-use plastic cutlery and napkins and things, you know, stuff like that. Or you have like the product and then the product is in a single use bag and then the single mm-hmm. use bag is in the manufacturer's box, which is then in the courier's box. It's just like you could have just dropped it off in the bag. <laughs> and there's stuff some crunchy brown paper in there as well so that it's not rattling about. I've ordered food from places before and they've brought it to me in single use plastic instead of in, you know, like a, a cardboard container or something. And in London, most things come in sustainable packaging now. So there's places that I've ordered from that I'm like, I'm mm, probably not going to do that again because I felt bad about the plastic. You just want your Uber Eats driver to come around and just like, <laughs> give you the food. Just like, you know, you cup your hands and he just empties the fries <laughs> just straight into you. Like, I don't want any of this bad karma from the single use plastic. Or cardboard container for my fries. Just, you know, <laughs> just give me the burger. <laughs> just put it straight into the mouth, yeah. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's very good from a food hygiene perspective either. You know, there's regulations they've got to follow. I mean, food, I, I don't actually know this because, like I say, most of the reading that I do is around, like, power generation and electricity storage. But I, I imagine that food, or at least the logistics of food, must be one of the worst things for the climate just because... In my um, very simple mind, food is heavy and they make the food far away. <laughs> yeah. And far away and heavy to me <laughs> sounds like a lot of carbon. Yeah, it's quite a lot of carbon. There's a lot to consider realistically. Like if you think about things like fruit and vegetables, there's all of the work that goes into like growing that and farming that agriculturally. Also, the yield is never 100%. Like you might have a bad crop one year or you might have some pests or a particular fungus or something that like wipes out a good portion of what you've grown. So effectively, all of the energy that you've put into growing that has been wasted. You have a lower yield and then you need to transport that, make sure that you've stored it correctly in the meantime. And also about a third of food before it even enters the supermarket supply chain is wasted because it's not uniform or they've got too much or too little of it it's not the right size or shape it might be like the wrong color or something like that so things like bell peppers if they're not one of those you know three recognizable colors that they're supposed to be or if a cucumber is a bit wonky or something then it tends to be rejected and, and thrown away before it even reaches the consumer 
which is also really impactful because you've got effectively like a third of your actual yield there is maybe not even usable. So you've got things like Oddbox and like Wonky Veg, which I think Aldi and a couple of other supermarkets do now, maybe Morrison's as well. They're trying to sort of mitigate that somewhat by allowing the sale of produce that would otherwise be removed from the supply chain. So I've had a couple of odd boxes in the past and they're really cool. They come pretty much straight from the farmers. They're not like processed or anything first. And the reasons that they've supplied me with certain things are because they've been like the wrong size or shape. They've grown too many. And occasionally there were too few to meet the demand. So a supermarket or someone has ordered a certain number of something, there weren't enough available after growing those or whatever. So that contract or that order has been cancelled and they've gone with a different ingredient instead. And then they've got all of this food that they've grown that they need to get rid of somehow. And something else that personally I really love is, so I don't don't really eat a lot of bread because I, I live by myself. And bread tends to last like a loaf of bread lasts like four or five days. And I can't really eat a whole loaf of bread in four or five days. So I, I used to buy that one of those. It can't be good for you, even if you could. Yeah. Just I like mean, if you were eating like it's a lot of fiber. two loaves of bread a week. <laughs> like. they, don't, they just don't last very long. And especially if you get one on like a Sunday before the supermarkets had their new delivery in, then you might have like two days, maybe three at a push to eat a loaf of bread. So I did used to buy those little like half loaves. Or I would freeze it sometimes, which I don't really like, but it preserves it a bit longer. It just means that like when you need to use it, it's it's not very nice. So I stopped doing that because there is a, a London company again called Baker Street and they, they're incredible. They do something different in their production process and in the way that they package their food and their loaves of bread last like six or seven weeks. I think this is the second shout out that Baker Street has had on this podcast. No, surely not. I think it is. I think I'm pretty sure you <laughs> previously mentioned your um, bread escapades. Oh, I don't know. Maybe. They're really cool, though. I do really like them. So if I buy bread, I get that particular brand of bread because then I'm not throwing away that plastic bag and most of a loaf of bread every week or so and feeling awful about it. Like, I, I do feel really bad about food waste, knowing how impactful it is from a climate perspective. It's really easy to solve this problem, though. Stop eating meat. Moving on. Ooh, controversial. <laughs> Let's get into that, shall we? Somebody said to me that there's areas of land that we can't use for for farming, like uh, growing wheat and things like that. So that we so we use it for things like sheep and things like that because we can't uh, can't grow wheat or similar products on that land. How true is that? <laughs> I think it depends what it is that you're looking at growing and like what the conditions of that environment are. Because we see things now like greenhouses almost um, for growing vegetables and fruit where they'll grow things vertically or in kind of abnormal conditions. So without soil, they'll grow them purely in water or in a growing solution or something like that to improve the yield, protect them from the elements and make better use of the space. So again, the yield is increased rather than growing them outside on like a, a flat, bunch of like arable land with hedgerows that are intended to maintain the biodiversity of local populations and and so on i think if we were more creative we would always be able to find a way to use that space it does make me laugh when when you have like the ways in which we have utilized awkward space or awkward land and you look at things like putting solar panels in places that we've spoken about, like these crazy ideas of like putting solar panels in the Sahara Desert and those kinds of things, or, or even just like other industrial projects. It's just like, 
Um, somebody on one hand saying, oh, we can't possibly use this land for anything other than sheep grazing. It's not ideal land. And then you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to build the M62, but there's a mountain <laughs> in the way. But don't worry, we'll just build the M62 over the mountain. And we have these, you know, huge industrial projects where like we can we can put motorways in incredibly undesirable places and it works. That one really upset me that I think it was HS2 where they were going to build this massive like high speed train line from uh, the south all the way up into the north of England um, and potentially connect to Scotland as well. And it was going to cut through this massive piece of ancient woodland. I guess 70% of the UK used to be forested. And now it's such a small proportion. I'm not sure what the exact figure is, but there are so many like conservation efforts and projects to protect this land and to make sure that we maintain the biodiversity of like the populations and things that reside there. But somebody wants to make a profit <laughs> and then, you know, like descopes the northern part of the project anyway, because who cares about northerners really? Tricky one, that one. But I think like when you look at the carbon impact of it, so that, that site that I mentioned earlier where you can put in your like dietary preferences and whether you eat like dairy products and so on, it works out your carbon footprint for you. If you're a vegetarian, it's estimated that your carbon footprint is about half that of a meat eater. So before you even consider like whether you drive or you travel more than the average person or anything like that, like it's already half the potential impact. I think the the stat is if you eat a portion of meat a day, so a deck of playing cards sort of sized in, in each meal, um, that doubles your carbon footprint. And most people eat more than that as well. I'm pretty sure you referred to that as meat overdose. I refer to heart disease as meat overdose. <laughs> Holly's a vegetarian in case anyone couldn't tell. <laughs> As you all will be by 2080 when we outlaw eating meat. <laughs> when I'm in power, things will be different. Yeah. How are you going to win votes? People are like, I want a steak and I'm going to have one at any cost. You know, they're not going to they're not gonna vote for you to be supreme leader of the world if you make them vegetarian. We'll make them steaks instead. <laughs> going to go silent green on you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. No, we can't get into fascism today. No, thank you. We can save that for memes. I thought you were going to get into prions disease, to be honest. But okay. No, no, not that one. That That's also kind of sketchy, though. We can talk about that when we talk about um, memes as propaganda. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's a good episode. I'm looking forward to memes yeah. as propaganda. Yeah, that's going to be fun. <laughs> so As all good citizens should. <laughs> So the carbon impact of wheat versus beef. Um, what What's your guess? What do you think that is? I'd like a guess and then you can Google it. So I don't, I don't know the carbon footprint, but, but I believe that if you grew wheat instead of beef, the end result would be an output of about 60% more food product. Hmm. Growing meat is inefficient generally speaking again glossing over variables like what particular land you're using or what it's suitable for and those kinds of things but in general wheat production is more efficient than beef production well yeah i guess because you're cutting out a whole step whereas if you just grew whatever it is that it's it's eating like wheat and, and made like bread or something um or even beer beer is is more efficient than we've been through this before beer is not a meal <laughs> I disagree. 
<laughs> I'm just saying, you know, if you replace your meat with beer, it's more carbon friendly. <laughs> okay, before we before we move on then, I guess something something that we haven't mentioned like is the use of technology around like agriculture and things like that, right? So one of the things that I really like is things like the the use of drones to assist agriculture and those kinds of things and the efficiencies that can be gained from the use of those kinds of technologies. But also something that I'm interested in since we've been talking about land usage is things like uh, vertical crop growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, drones is a, actually a really cool one that I was reading about earlier. So I mentioned some of the issues that farmers have with uh, crop yields particularly kind of you know growing outdoors or if there's disease or a particular um, pest or something that's like infesting their crops that year they're starting to use drones or, or uavs for what they're calling precision farming which allows you to like basically you can record in what's pretty much like 4k or 8k or whatever it is now like these images it was a, a big deal that they were like so much better resolution than satellite images, which are accurate to like about 10 meters or something. Whereas like drones will give you like sub centimeter images. So you can identify issues with your crops or, or poor yield or something like that really, really quickly. Multiple um, angles as well. Yeah. So getting, getting mm-hmm. uh, multiple angles through satellites can be inefficient, whereas a drone can just circle. Yeah. And it, it saves you like a lot of time and money and it allows you to like identify any issues with crops much, much earlier in the process so that you can mitigate. You distinguish that between drone and UAV. I said drone and then you said UAV. Is that an important distinction in that context? I think drones get a bad press. <laughs> oh, okay. And I think UAV is uh, a bit broader as a term. So you can use you can use them for more than people think that you can. So rather than just like recording a video of a field of crops and saying, well, these look like they're healthy or this corner here is having a bit of an issue. You can use UAVs for things like propagating seeds, for example, or spraying pesticides and stuff like that. Whereas I think a drone or I think of a drone as being particular size and weight and potentially being limited on what it can carry. Whereas UAVs like potentially have wider reaching um, applications. Yeah, I I don't know if this is my particular background, but the distinction for me. So I I think there is a a presumption with drone. Like when, when you say drone, people think of like DJI Mavics and things like that. For me, the distinction would be uh, whether the vehicle is autonomous or not. I also think of um, drones in a a more violent context, typically. So I don't just think of them as like a a farming application. I think of them more as an instrument of war these days. But that is a separate episode, definitely. (laughs) Anyway, that's that's quite a big deal to use drones or UAVs, however you want to refer to it, for farming because food waste is... Figures vary, but they say between 6 and 10% of global emissions occur as a result of food waste, so about 8% on average. And that's post-considering the third of food that's wasted before it even enters the like supermarket supply chain. So it's, it's quite a lot, really. There was a, an NGO climate action group called RAP. I was reading a study from them earlier and they said that about 30% of global greenhouse gases come from producing food, which is more than all commercial flights combined. So there's a couple of other industries there that 
food waste or food production and waste completely outweigh the emissions like caused by those industries. So yeah, it's definitely something to be mindful of. And I think the other thing that you mentioned was vertical crop growth. Yeah, I just, I think um, it's something to raise when people say like, oh, we can't use this land for other reasons and those kinds of things. It's just like, oh, well, you can't, you can't grow crops on hills. I'm like, you can grow crops in some, some pretty interesting places. Like you can build a motorway over a mountain if you want to. There's, you know, it is possible. And I think vertical crop growth is also potentially something to consider when you, when you look at, uh, you know, a nation like the United Kingdom where we're a small island, there's only so much land to go around and it's the, it's the same kind of hat tip towards wind generation and, and the land requirements there. It's the same with, with food generation, right? There's land requirements and if you can grow crops vertically and there are land limitations, that's one way to address that. Yeah, definitely. And there are certain species or like variations of food that are actually more efficiently grown that way got a friend who got into growing tomatoes recently and there's a very specific type of tomato that he's growing and there are ways of pruning tomato plants so that they will grow to improve the yield that you get from them and most people I guess would just let them kind of grow out sideways and end up with like a little kind of tomato plant bush but if you like attach it to like a little trellis or a support of some kind and groom it so that it grows upwards then you end up with a higher yield of tomatoes. So in some situations, it's better and the more like responsible thing to do. And there's there's also um, this plant guy on Instagram that I follow. I think he's like Australian. And he has a couple of the same kinds of plants that I do. But again, instead of just sitting it in a pot, and potentially like quite a large pot because it, it needs a certain like, volume of soil for the roots to be able to basically get as much water as they need to to the rest of the plant, he propagates it vertically so he'll create this kind of like mossy pole type thing with like pebbles in the back and then a bit of soil and then some moss to hold onto the water and attaches it using like chicken wire basically and these plants will grow to like 20 feet tall and normally you might be lucky for them to get to four or five feet and it's just because of the different growing techniques so I think vertical crop growth has a lot of potential really really cool but I think there are certain areas of land that we should preserve as well. I don't think that the argument for efficiency, I think, is to reduce the damage done by the demands for the human race or or people who need specific things on the earth. It sounds a little bit Greenpeace, eco-warriory, but like there's all of these environments and these natural habitats that other creatures inhabit that we damage with our demands. If there is an area that is occupied by I don't know like wild horses or goats or something like that like they shouldn't be disturbed because we need to grow something or we want to put solar panels somewhere we've got to kind of consider the impact on both sides like is this ultimately going to benefit us in a way that doesn't damage like the biodiversity of this area or cause other long-term impacts Oh, there's huge things as well, like how cities are bad for your mental health, not only for the things that might immediately come to mind, like pollution and vehicles and things like that, but it's just like, they're also just loud. And it turns out loud is really bad for you. Mm -hmm. And it's really rare that there's just like a grassy space or some trees or some like dogs that you can go and see. 
like in London, there's not very many boroughs that are dog friendly. You have to kind of live on one of the like outer boroughs, I guess, or an area that has like a dedicated green space for you to be able to see anything that's not human and is alive. And that does really impact it. One more thing before we move off food as well. Was it a bad idea that we decided to increase our yield of food by putting poison on it? Ooh, this is a tricky one. Um, yeah, there, so there are certain insecticides that are harmful to natural pollinators like bees. Bees are a really important part of the ecosystem very underrated in my humble opinion and so are butterflies butterflies are pollinators but a lot of people don't know that so there's certain kinds of flowers and things that you can plant for bees and for butterflies and and other pollinators to to benefit like the biodiversity of an ecosystem but there are some pesticides that were banned by the eu because they were damaging to bee populations And the last I heard was that the UK were going to approve the use of those pesticides now that we have left the EU formally. I I don't agree with that. I think that there's only so much that we can do to improve the efficiency of a system or to make it more eco-friendly or something like that, more environmentally friendly, less impactful. But if you're... The mechanism that you're using to improve like the yield of your crops so that you're reducing food waste or something like that has an other intended or unintended damaging environmental consequence that is irresponsible yeah i'm not convinced we should put poison on our food uh, (laughs) or into our environment or into our uh, water sources Um, Mm. one more thing we mentioned waste with food right you said it was a third of food is thrown out before it reaches the supermarket right Mm. so there's just great losses in food production i had a a pair of jeans that is essentially brand new i've worn them like three times they're motorcycle jeans so they're like really hard wearing and i really like them and i broke the zip on them i'm not capable of replacing a zip i'm practically a moron (laughs) i wanted to find you know a tailor a seamstress or someone in the area that could repair these jeans for me that are essentially brand new but i broke the zip I found a really hard time in this area of actually doing that. And when I spoke to people about it, like, oh, how frustrating this is that I just need a zip and then otherwise these jeans are perfect. People were just like, get another pair, right? It's only a pair of jeans. And like, I get the argument from like, grand scheme of things, it's only a pair of jeans. But like, it just felt so wasteful. It is. Also, they were, because they're motorcycle jeans, they were really expensive jeans. And probably really cute as well. Motorcycle clothes are really cute. Like really hard wearing, like Kevlar yeah. lined, yeah. and then just like, oh, I broke the zip, and now they're ruined. Yeah. So, so the, the, what I'm what I'm getting at here is, I imagine there's a lot of just like waste in other areas as well, such as fashion. Yeah, the fashion industry is massive. It is huge. Oh, so we should probably talk about fast fashion here. So, anybody who frequents popular kinds of social media, like Instagram or TikTok or potentially YouTube will have seen influencers online doing clothing hauls from uh, Zara, ASOS, Boohoo, Shein, etc. Where they effectively buy a whole bunch of cheap clothes and then do a bit of a show and tell, like, here are all my cute new outfits, aren't they great? The problem is that these clothes are, they're cheap, they are quickly mass-produced, they are poor quality and they don't last very long. So there are specific areas and companies that contribute to this massively. 
they end up ultimately being discarded and in landfill. They're not recycled. They're not worn very many times. There was a study that found that the fashion industry is responsible for more than 10% of global emissions every year. And the ethical consumer estimates that the average piece of clothing is only worn about 14 times before it's discarded. So really, really inefficient there. You'd worn those those jeans, those bike jeans, like once, maybe twice, whatever. Um, but even not not enough times to justify throwing them out in in my humble opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it's extra difficult because from an ethical perspective, the companies like they don't pay a living wage. Typically, workers, garment workers, are being exploited. They're not paid a living wage. They are forced to work in unethical, unsafe, poor conditions. They're working really long hours. These clothes end up containing microplastics, which are. I think suspected or proven to be carcinogens and they also damage marine life when they ultimately end up in like the water cycle from what i've read so far it's just one of those like hey this stuff is getting literally everywhere Mm -hmm. um that's probably bad yeah I i think that's where we're at with microplastics i saw an article a few months ago where a baby had been born and there were microplastics in the baby's placenta and that was the first documented case of that ever occurring. That was kind of wild. The Environmental Protection Agency stated that in the US in 2018, 17 million tons of textile waste was generated and only about 2.5 million tons of that was actually recycled. So this is, it's really, it's not just from like a, a landfill perspective, it's the the carbon required to create these clothes, the water required as well. I think creating cotton is a really like water intensive process. Using like dye and things like that on clothes is also really water intensive. So when you consider there are areas as well that don't have access to clean water, it's really difficult for me personally to like reconcile myself with that, like that amount of like wastage. There are alternatives to fast fashion. There are some companies that are using recycled fabrics and factory offcuts or they're creating lines using specifically repurposed and like recycled ocean plastics and things like that and they're becoming more popular but they're often far too expensive for the average person to be able to access that they're just not affordable like you think about it especially during like the cost of living crisis a lot of people just can't justify spending that much on a sustainable alternative that had a lower impact from a supply chain or a production perspective than like, I don't know, a three pound t-shirt from Primark or something. They're going to go for what they can afford and then they're going to throw it away afterwards because you, being mindful of these things is a privilege afforded to people who already have like a baseline level of wealth. And until it becomes more accessible to lower income families and ordinary people, I don't think we're going to see a massive difference being made there. Um, but something that is like really popular among younger millennials and like Gen Z especially is like thrifting and going to charity shops and using things like Depop. And I think Vinted is another app that you can use to like sell your old clothes, basically. You can do like swaps or just sell things for kind of cheaper than you would get them from a shop. And then you get something that's a bit unique that maybe your friends don't have or something because it's it's a bit older. It's from like a previous season. It encourages us to like rewear things and to revisit like trends from the past. And I think like when I think of this, I think about slow fashion and how even 
in like the 60s and the 50s, people would like go and visit a tailor or a seamstress or someone and they would have them make clothes for that person. Like you, you would see a dressmaker and they would make you a dress and it would last you a long time. You would look after it well. You would like launder it properly and make sure that it was stored correctly and you would wear it as much as you could before you threw it away. And we don't get that now. I think like you say, like people do have this attitude of just kind of like, oh, the zip's broken, throw it away, like rather than learning to repair things. I think that is one of the, on the individual side of things, one of the biggest things in terms of just like wearing the product. Like if you're going to get a product, like, you know, get, get wear out of it. Don't just like, oh, the zip has gone and I'm just going to throw it away because let's be honest, once I got sorted, that was a very simple fix and those jeans are fantastic. Um, I also saw something which I hadn't thought about previously, but it kind of made sense when it was raised to my attention. There was a outdoor clothing company that was talking about uh, the difficulty of waterproofing products and how they do it and how their uh, mechanism for waterproofing products is considered relatively old school and using like waxes and things like that, which have a negative performance in terms of breathability in comparison to more modern products like Gore-Tex. And the reason that that company had done that was in their view, products like Gore-Tex, although very good performance in terms of being waterproof and breathability, they consider them environmentally bad because they don't believe that they're recyclable. And I think that's just the kind of thing to consider is like, not only like the number of uses that we get out of a product, but as you say, like, how is that product being developed? Is it being made in a way that is environmentally friendly, but also is it made of things that are environmentally friendly? Like what, what materials are in use there? And like I say, once it was raised to me, it's like, oh yeah, like that, the materials that are used is probably something that I should think about and, and learn more about. And it just, I just hadn't considered it. Mm. Yeah, I think it's this is a really wide-reaching and pervasive topic. And almost anything is a climate change technology application when you think about it. Like even the number of spam emails that you get in a year and what the energy consumption is of, of the servers that are potentially being used to distribute that or something, you know. It's... Somebody mentioned that to me yesterday. They said... Um how many times do you have to listen to a CD before you break even on the environmental impact of streaming? Because I hadn't considered, but it makes sense that streaming is, is actually very bad for the environment in comparison to the reuse of a printed material. Mm. I mean, like the short story there is just like, hey, data centers, like pretty awful. But yeah, they were thinking about just this idea of like, should they buy CDs versus should they stream music in, in mm. actuality? It might be the case that you might think that streaming music is better for the environment because this physical product isn't being produced, you know, especially if you consider things like vinyl. Yeah, I think that's something worth considering as well, isn't it? Like personally and like anecdotally from a lot of people that I know, like I, I don't know people that would listen to a handful of albums and just be happy with that. People are consistently discovering new music and like listening to new artists and branching out. And you might have like, you know, dozens, tens, hundreds of albums in your repertoire or in your library or whatever you're listening to. I've got to pull a stats for, for my chosen streaming platform <laughs> um, because you're like, yeah, yeah, people listen to like dozens of albums and they have this really wide range of music. Um, after the show, let's pull the stats from mine because I think what we're going to yeah. find is it, it's going to say like, hey, you listen to like three songs on repeat. It's <laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> I think that's an ADHD thing. <laughs>
yeah no but for for real like um i i have a like a really ranging music taste i guess and i listen to pretty much everything and when spotify do that like wrapped thing at the end of the year and they tell you like which artists you listen to most and what your favorite songs were and stuff like that that's always really fun for me and I love it but I know very well that if I bought every album that I streamed I a wouldn't have the space for it and b wouldn't listen to them enough for me to feel that that was justifiable so I have like a handful of records like a record player and some vinyls and I don't buy things on vinyl unless I really, really love them. And I know that I'm going to listen to them if Spotify dies a death suddenly. Because it's just not worth it for me. I feel like the space that it takes up in my house for a start and then like the manufacturing impacts of that are just really inefficient when I know that I'm probably going to listen to that entire album once and then I'll listen to a different artist or a different album or something. I just feel really cold out now. What do you mean you listen to more than three songs? <laughs> we appreciate neurodivergence here, obviously. Have you met us? This is not the podcast for how my brain works, though. Is there anything we've missed? Is there anything I no way got to talk as much as I wanted to about nuclear? I didn't even mention the fact that there's different reactor types yeah. and to rant about pebble bed reactors versus we can uh, rbmks we can do a quick tldr of nukes if you want i'm just thinking like of nukes that's a very different <laughs> podcast oh uh, one last thing since we're talking about nukes to finish off this episode um when there is an incident with a nuclear weapon uh, in particular when a nuclear weapon is uh, lost we call those broken arrows the problem with that is not only has that happened, it has happened enough times that we have a term for it. And uh, if nuclear weapons in general terrify you, what should scare you even more is the fact that uh, we don't know where six of them are. Shit.